It is Wednesday, November 8th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, the Arkansas Poll has released its 25th edition of the annual survey. 25 years of polling means a lot of data. And my best estimate, it varies a little bit from year to year, but is somewhere around 23,000 interviews over the years. So, you know, the scientist in me says, well, that's 1.4 million data points. Plus, the Fort Smith Symphony is releasing world premiere recordings of compositions by Lewis Wayne Ballard. Area just southwest of Miami uh, called Devil's Promenade. That's actually where he was really born. That's where the uh, Quapaw Nation headquarters is. He's a Quapaw Cherokee composer. And Music Moves brings us good news and the blues. We're taking drums into schools and they're applying it and, and making it their own. So we're, we're really excited about all the educational stuff that we're doing. Before that, this hour's news. KUAF is supported by Biotech Pharmacal. With Veterans Day approaching, owners Dale and Hope Benedict would like to thank all military veterans of the United States Armed Forces for their service. Their pure and hypoallergenic vitamins and supplements available locally or online at biotechpharmacal.com. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, November 8th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF in Fayetteville. Later on the show, for Jay Gilligan, juggling is not about impressing people, but about expressing wonder. He's at the Jones Center in Springdale Saturday, and he'll talk with us during our second half hour. For a quarter century, the Arkansas poll has been directed by Dr. Janine Perry, a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas. Its longevity, transparency, and effort to present relevant statistics to Arkansans in a digestible fashion are just a few of the hallmarks of its tradition. When I asked about her legacy with the poll, Perry was modest, but when coerced to reflect on it, like any good scientist, she points to the data. For me, I like to keep tabs on how many total interviews we've done. And my best estimate, it varies a little bit from year to year, but is somewhere around 23,000 interviews over the years. The interviews are typically at least 60 questions long. So, you know, the scientist in me says, well, that's 1.4 million data points. And mostly I think that we've informed the public discourse in a way that just elections, you know, really uh, can't quite do. So, um, yeah, it feels good. I wonder, as someone who is not originally from Arkansas, for you, was starting the Arkansas poll a way for you to kind of get a better pulse of politics here in the state? Well, to be honest, it was actually something uh, one of my colleagues, uh, who's uh, since moved on from the university, but he thought as a policy expert, it was something the flagship school should be doing. And I was the new person, so he thought I should be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you started. But I, I, came, I came to appreciate almost out of the gate how powerful it was as a tool and, yes, how much it helped me understand the state. It's not just that I'm not... From here, it's also that within four months of moving here, I taught an advanced level course in Arkansas politics. So every single time we do the poll and I kind of look at the patterns develop, uh, it helps me in teaching that course. It helps me on commenting on elections and policies here. Uh, it's, it's been a, an incredible benefit. Over the last several years, we've seen some hesitancy and some apprehension around polling. There's a lot of folks who are maybe in the camp of throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to polling, that they're concerned that 
polling in general can't be trusted. As someone who has done this for 25 years, what would you say to someone who is concerned about the validity of of your polling that you're doing? I have ample opportunity to consider this question uh, because inevitably somebody who doesn't like the results um, decides to become an expert in sampling or uh, platforms or that kind of thing, margins of error, they try to dive in. There are reasons to be, I think, a mindful consumer of poll results because there are lots of bad examples out there for sure. So, you know, if your news station says, you know, call in and let us know how you feel about traffic conditions. Well, everybody knows that's not a representative sample. And then, of course, the technology is, are the technologies are always changing, even of polls that try to be scientific and collect a random sample. Uh, and that can be a zigzagging walk. So while um, the, the latest technique, which is also one of the cheaper techniques of Internet polling or I guess sort of a small piece of that, which is sending people links to their texts, since so many people text now, and you can hit the link and then you can participate in the poll. That makes a lot of sense in maybe states that have uh, big metro areas where there are a lot of people with a lot of education and more money. In a place like Arkansas, it doesn't make as much sense. The same conflicts and um, zigzagging performance was true uh, when we moved from mail polls, you know, through the Postal Service Mm -hmm. to telephones, because certain people were likely to have telephones and certain people were not, and that could affect your results. So there's always reason, I think, to be a cautious consumer. But I would say the hallmarks of a good poll, one that deserves a second look, would be one in which you can see all of the questions uh, and all of the details about how the poll was conducted with no more than one click. If you can't see it at all, that's a no, right? Move on with your life, consume some other form of information. Or, you know, if you can kind of dive into the details, as we've always tried to do, uh, that's something that's probably worth your time because you can see, well, how representative is it of who they claim to be standing for? So you should be able to see not just the margin of error, but how the questions were asked, including the answer options, even the order they were asked. Like we, we publish our protocol in full so you can see exactly what respondents heard. So I I think that's um, a really useful indicator of what's likely to have been done conscientiously, what's likely at least reaching for the gold standard of polling, and what's, you know, just noise or trying to actually influence the conversation rather than represent it. As we look at at the poll that you did, uh, the front page here talks about the most important problem. And you ask, what is the most important issue facing people in Arkansas today? And a third, more than a third of people said the economy. And looking at previous years, this has constantly been a concern. So I suppose you're not surprised at all when you when you see that the economy is the main concern. I'm not uh, surprised when I see that. It's usually uh, something to do. It's usually the economy, uh, education, and or healthcare. Those tend to be the big three in Arkansas and in other state polls or nationally. But I was interested this year. This was a year in odd numbered years we ask people. And we don't provide them with categories. You know, we don't force them. We don't force their responses into what we think the top five or six things are. Mm -hmm. We just ask them. And then the interviewers, bless their hearts, they type it in as fast as they can. So this is a year in which I get to look and see. And it's really interesting to see all that's captured in what we then end up calling the category economy. 
economy. Can you give some examples? Yes. There are lots of people who said paying the bills or some version of that. So Mm -hmm. they're looking at it on a micro level. There are lots of people who said inflation. They're looking at it on a micro level, but also probably a macro level. They consume a lot of news and understand what's happening there. They'll talk about jobs. They'll talk about wages. Those, you know, the um, a plant closing in their community. It's really kind of an intimate look uh, into the 800 or so people we talk with every year. So it's a, a broad swath of individuals. Oh, some of them will say like home loan rates. I saw mm. that a few times. Yeah, mortgage since, rates for sure. Mm-hmm, yeah. Since that's <laughs> gone up. So there's a lot. It's kind of a catch-all category, but it's certainly one with which almost everyone can identify. The element of the poll that I think certainly got the most attention was around the approval rating of Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, according to your polling, uh, a 48 percent approval rating for the for the governor. It's the lowest in 20 years. And that dates back to uh, her father, who was governor in 2003. He got 47 percent. Do you think it's significant the timing of the polling around her rating as well? I know that this happened in early October and through some weeks of October. This was right after, you know, stories started to break about the lectern. Uh, This was soon after the special session where FOIA was uh, restricted. There seems to be some opportunity that the timing of the polling played a role in this too, right? It definitely uh, plays a role. And you see that with presidential approval ratings where you can see particular events even, you know, because those are tracked um, sometimes nightly, but definitely weekly, monthly, quarterly. You can see particular economic shocks or political events, international events um, causing a, a bounce or a sink in a president's rating. So timing matters. And in fact, with um, the other uh, one that was below 50 percent, uh, Mike Huckabee, he was struggling with education reform issues, uh, had proposed a major school consolidation plan as a response to the Lakeview cases over equity and adequacy in K through 12 funding in Arkansas public schools. So uh, he also was taking a hit right around that time, had just come through an election contest that was closer than you would have thought, given how strong he'd been before and how strong he ended up being uh, toward the end of his governorship. So timing matters, yes. I wanted to take a look. I hadn't looked at this. I don't know if you've looked at this in a minute either. (laughs) It's been a long time. (laughs) This is the the copy of the very first Arkansas poll from November of 1999. Mm -hmm. One of the things that stands out to me is uh, I think you may have just recently discovered pie charts because there are... Uh, a dozen plus pie charts in here. Oh, yes. Um, it was you, so fancy in 1999. <laughs> um, you know, as you look back on the first time you put this together, I imagine you were trying to make this, how can I make this as accessible to someone who is not interested in polling? How can I entice them to take a look at this and to be interested in this? Compared to now, I think... Th- political appetite has changed and and we've seen people are a lot more likely to be forgiving and look at numbers instead of charts. As you think about the first time you were putting this together, was a driving force 
I hope someone looks at this. Yes. There was a certain quality of digestibility and, um, you know, making it accessible, particularly to television media. Mm. It was never, and it still isn't, uh, it's a tough story, I think, for TV. I really admire that so many stations still pick it up every year, and sometimes they make their own graphics. But yes, originally we were thinking that that would be flashier and it might help people kind of comprehend um what we hoped would facilitate more public conversation. As you think about this as being your your final year doing the Arkansas poll, do you think about your legacy? Do you think about the work that you've done to get to this point and, you know, the the large shoes that will have to be filled by your absence from this poll? That's sweet of you to say. I think about it, I guess, mainly in the sense that it's a really... It's an unusual thing that Arkansas has a scientifically conducted, totally public poll and that it's had one for this long and that the data are collected and stored. Roper keeps the data. University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill keeps the data. And then, of course, we have it all publicly available on the Arkansas Poll website. So Arkansas is unique in a lot of ways, and it doesn't always feel unique good. That's something I've learned from my students over the years, you know, that they seem to feel a sense of of shame or at least humility about, you know, where we rank in various things, right? We're we're high on the things that you don't want to be number one at, <laughs> and we're low on the things you do often. But this is actually something that's pretty exceptional, especially in a time of um, nationalization and polarization in politics, when all the policy is really happening at the state level. We are one of the few states that can really track what people want over time. And I feel I feel good about that. And I hope that it has facilitated and will continue to facilitate some of the conversation. It's not just the Arkansas legislature. I mean, the Hawaii legislature now is 90-10, 90% Democrat, 10% Republican. The people of Hawaii are not that skewed. It's the same thing in our legislature, as you can see over and over again in this poll, whether it's policy preferences or partisan identification. We're really like a third, a third, and a third, or 60-40 on lots of issues, we can find each other again if we'll focus on the things we have in common. And I think this poll shows that. And perhaps less on, you know, these really hard-edged messages uh, that we get from the two teams competing for our attention and our loyalty. Janine Perry, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. One month after war broke out between Israel and Hamas, anti-war protests and pro-Palestinian support is growing in the United States, including in northwest Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has this report. This past Saturday, more than 100 pro-Palestine demonstrators marched from the Washington County Courthouse to the University of Arkansas campus in Fayetteville. Abel Tomlinson is with the Arkansas Anti-War Alliance and put on the rally with the student-led activist group NWA for Palestine. There's millions of people all over the world in major cities. Millions of people are protesting for peace for Palestine. And we're just having Northwest Arkansas join the world community. In a sea of black, green, red, and white Palestinian flags, Salma Boudoum holds a yellow sign with the words, No More War, written on drawings of missiles. She says she turned out because she wants people in Arkansas to take note of the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza. She also says this protest is about demanding a ceasefire and not pitting people against each other. If you are pro-Palestine, does not mean you're anti-Jews, does not mean you're anti-Semitic. It's just like there's no Muslims against Jews or Muslims against Christians. It's just 
people with different uh, religion that wants their freedom. So please stop using the anti-Semitic word. Another protester, Hamad Javed, says while the conflict seems far away, he believes this war is closer than many people realize. Because the evangelist base that is present for the Christian Zionists, right, is here, right? That work, hap- that work happens in Arkansas. If there is a country in the world who can make Israel see the light and stop them, it's the United States, and that work begins here. This protest was one of thousands of demonstrations that took place in cities across the U.S. over the weekend as the war continues to dominate headlines. And for one University of Arkansas student, the war in Gaza is all too close. Lean, who asked we only use her first name, is a Palestinian-American who grew up in Arkansas and has family living in the West Bank. It's definitely like we're, we're always keeping in touch with them. We're always just wanting to know how they are, how things are going. Um, luckily, like we haven't heard anything like too bad um, regarding our family. But, you know, it's always just like that phone call. You're like waiting. You're like, oh, my God, please let it be okay. She says when she heard about the attack on Israeli civilians by Hamas on October 7th, she immediately braced herself for the worst. Um, Three weeks later, I'm just frustrated because I feel helpless. Uh, I'm sad for the countless lives lost. And I feel that the problems that we face here daily are so minute compared to the problems that the people of, uh, of Gaza are facing right now. And I'm, I'm trying to balance, um, you know, diminishing my problems. And I'm not trying to diminish anyone else's problems because everyone's problems are valid, but it really puts what you face on a day-to-day basis in perspective when you think about what's going on. She says watching the situation unfold far away has been paralyzing, but that she hasn't faced any hostility from classmates just often curiosity and some misinformation. So I do think they're trying to understand, which I think is way better than just be saying, I don't know anything about this. I want to stay out of this. Like, no, I'd rather you come to me with misinformation so that we can kind of see what's going on. So there are gaps in understanding. Um, I think it's my duty as a Palestinian with that privilege to speak about it, be a voice for the people that right now are being silenced. And so, no, I don't find it tasking at all. I find it kind of like I'm doing my part. And I want the more people that are informed, the better. And Abel Tomlinson says the Arkansas Anti-War Alliance is planning to put on more demonstrations as the conflict continues. You know, this isn't an issue of religion or taking one side or anything like that. It's an issue of political policy and peace and really standing up for justice and peace in a sincere and intelligent way. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Later this hour, world premiere recordings from the Fort Smith Symphony. This recording, uh, the idea is it's really a rediscovery of his music. He, he was very busy during his lifetime. He had a lot of performances. And uh, what this recording demonstrates, I think, is uh, that he really was a musical chameleon. John Jetter talks with us about the new recordings of music composed by Lewis Wayne Ballard. That's in just a few minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. 
On yesterday's Ozarks at Large, Sophia Narani reported on the status of the Quonset huts near downtown Fayetteville. Last night, the Fayetteville City Council unanimously approved vacating a right-of-way alley beside the Quonset huts and other businesses off of Center Street. This vacation order is one of several steps being taken to redevelop the location into a large-scale student housing complex. The order maintains the alley connecting Meadow and Center Street will be a public space. City commissioners say it will be crucial to maintaining connectivity in the area. Some Fayetteville residents expressed concern through written public comment at the council meeting, saying more steps need to be taken to protect local businesses from future plans for development in the city. This is Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. Always a treat to have John Jetter, who is the conductor and music director of the Fort Smith Symphony, with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. And he is with me again. How are you? And always a treat to speak with Kyle Kellums. We've known each other for a long time. Yes, we have. Yeah. Yes, we have. And um, new CD. And this is very exciting. Louis Wayne Ballard um, recorded by the symphony. It's on the. It's part of the American Classics from Naxos. Yes. This is really exciting. Yeah, we're very – yeah, so this is uh, our fifth recording for Naxos Records, uh, my seventh for them. Uh, they're the leading classical label in the world. They have a huge catalog, and we were fortunate enough uh, in last April to do a, uh, an entire concert of Lewis Ballard's music, and then the following two days we recorded it. And that's yeah, pretty quick turnaround time. The recording will be released on November 10th. This is Native American Heritage Month, and uh, it's it's just been a, a terrific project. Um, it's available uh, uh, as a stream. That's going to be primarily how people purchase it. We do still have. I gave you a CD. Yes, you yes did. still. I appreciate that. It's amazing. Most of the uh, radio stations they still like. Can you send us a CD? You know, Especially, we, we I think want... those who play classical music. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, uh, Lewis Wayne Ballard is recognized as the first Native American concert composer. He was born in Miami, Oklahoma. I do know how to – people are so impressed that I know the proper pronunciation of that. In uh, 1931, he was actually born – there's an area just southwest of Miami uh, called Devil's Promenade. That's actually where he was really born. That's where the uh, Quapaw Nation headquarters is. He's a Quapaw Cherokee composer. Um, grew up in that area, uh, received his master's degree in music from the University of Tulsa. I think he, he's listed as the first uh, indigenous musician to receive a master's degree in music. And uh, he, he had an incredible career. Uh, he spent most of his professional life in Santa Fe, New Mexico, although he traveled all over the world. Terrific composer. Performer, percussionist, um, music administrator. He was uh, head of uh, curriculum education for the Bureau of Indian Affairs for years. Uh, huge advocate for uh, all Native American art. He was known as a dancer, and uh, he was an excellent painter. Uh, he was captain of the high school. Oh, he's one of those <laughs> football, folks. Okay. football, and yeah, and baseball team. So I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. He even uh, had for a brief time he had a motion picture uh, production company. And wow. So yeah, ver- a very varied career. 
you mentioned Devil's Promenade, where he grew up. That's the first composition we hear on this CD. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's it's very cool. So uh, this recording, uh, the idea is it's really a rediscovery of his music. He he was very busy during his lifetime. He had a lot of performances, and uh, what this recording demonstrates, I think, is uh, that, that he's really was a musical chameleon. I mean, generally his music is pretty modern. Mm-hmm. So Devil's Promenade is, is kind of the first most, I guess, popular piece, uh, excuse me, most modern piece on this recording. It was uh, composed in 1973. The first thing you're going to hear is an eagle bone whistle, that 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 uh, shrill sound. And then you hear drumming, and that's our whole string section uh, uh, drumming on their, their instruments. And we actually had to rehearse that for a while. I imagine. How do you do it? Do you hold the instrument? Do you kind of stop it? Do you want? I think everyone thought, well, we're just going to kind of stop it so it has the kind of more of a dead sound. No, it actually worked best to let the strings resonate, and it had all these. uh, Actually, we were hitting the instrument, tapping it. How is that reflected in the composer's notes or the written? It's it's in there. There's. uh, I think there's. The note heads are like X's, okay. and it says t- I forget what it says, tap or hit or I something see. like that. So we had to kind of decide that. Uh, it's just, it's a wonderful piece. It's a real uh, orchestra showpiece. I, I hope that uh, with this, that orchestras will start to perform it. I could see it, the impact of it. I think is just incredible. The four moons is just this robust middle yeah. of the of the CD. Yeah, so The Four Moons was a it's a ballet score that Ballard composed for uh originally it was for the five moons mm-hmm. in the 1940s, 50s, 60s in the United States there were a group of dancers they didn't perform as a group but they were known as the Five Moons because these are all very famous ballerinas who had connections not only to Oklahoma, but uh, they all had indigenous uh, uh, indigenous culture, history uh, in their background. So ultimately, when it was decided to uh, compose this piece, uh, one, of, one of the dancers, uh, I think it was Maria Tulchief, I think she had just retired. So they say, okay, it's going to go from the five moons to the four mm-hmm. moons. And it's a beautiful ballet. It's not quite – it ha- almost has a uh, neoclassical mm-hmm. uh, sound to it. It's very tonal. It's very opposite than Devil's Promenade. Right. I mean, it's very, yeah. And uh, it's a beautiful there, – there's a, a few opening dances, and then each one of the uh, four primary uh, ballerinas, they each had a dance that sort of emphasized uh, their strengths as dancers – but also uh, each dance uh, was also uh, uh, represented the tribe that they were members of. So he tried to sort of capture some of the, I guess, the lore of those tribes in each one of the dances. We hope that um, with this recording, of course, we want people to love the music, but we really want to encourage any and all dance uh, ballet companies, large and small, 
to do this ballet. It's 23 minutes. It's very doable. And uh, in this day and age, you know, to have to have uh, an indigenous ballet with that subject matter, you know, what a what a, a variety to have in a you know in a ballet season. When you listen to the recording, can you go back to where you were at the session? Does it take you? Can you think? Oh, oh yeah, I remember when that was happening and. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I, actually, asking me that question uh, reminds me, I do uh, want to take the opportunity not only to thank Noxos for doing this, but uh, Bernd Gottinger was our recording engineer. And it was the first time we'd worked with him, and he was terrific. He was a lot of fun to work with. And uh, when when recordings like this are made, we always focus on the artists, right? Mm-hmm. But so much... So it's like watching a movie. You look at the movie and oh, you think about the actors and all. Of course, you know, director, producer, right? Right. So uh, yeah, it was a it was a fun process. Uh, he he liked to run a very intense session, which which we did. And I loved. We've talked about this before. Um, it's really my favorite thing to do because uh, at the end of the day. For for once, someone has my back. You know, mm-hmm. when I rehearse and perform, I mean, of course, I get have a great rapport with the orchestra. Sure. But yeah, there's someone like essentially above me, in a room somewhere else, saying, "Hey, we need to do this." And when you're in a uh, a space like we are now, and you're listening to music that's happening in another room, um, there's a very different perspective, and your perspective is actually more what the your audience is going to be for a recording. So you do things very differently. And sometimes you uh, – we had the experience where we played the piece in concert, and in order to, do, in order to get the same result uh, in the recording session that we did in concert, we had to play things differently. Because remember, he has to add balancing and reverb and things like that. So, yeah, it was very interesting. There were some things that we did. We essentially, the playing style was completely the opposite of what we did um, in on on stage for the performance. Because you're not playing to the back of the room. Exactly. You know, exactly. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're playing to that you're playing microphone to, exactly, that's on stage. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. These are world premiere recordings. Yes, they are all of them. That's cr- yeah, yeah, I, mean, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, so to to be very clear, <laughs> this is the to to my best of my knowledge and anyone's. This is the first commercial recording of uh, orchestral music that is dedicated to a historic. Native American concert composer. First time it's ever been done. Um, during Ballard's lifetime, he did have his own label, and there were a few live recordings of some of his pieces that he put. It was available on cassette tape. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think he ended up just kind of giving them away. And But, of course, he wasn't historic at that time. So uh, this is a, a, it was just a super fun project. And, of course, uh, being uh, Quapaw, uh, there's a, a historical connection to Arkansas. Right. You know, I mean, Arkansas, 
got its name from the Quapaw, from from French settlers mispronouncing the name of the tribe. And of course, you know, Devil's Promenade in Miami, Oklahoma, right next door to Fort Smith in there, Arkansas. Yeah, and uh, uh, the Trail of Tears, unfortunately, yeah. was as part of that with them have the forced relocation. Uh, I know the Quapaw, in the process of being relocated, essentially kind of, I wouldn't say escape, but they uh, moved back to Arkansas a few times. They loved they loved the state. Uh, Ballard uh, wrote music specific to their experience in the state. So uh, it's a wonderful connection. And Fort Smith has a, a, a very strong Western past. A lot of it not great, at, you know, but there's this, uh, there's a strong, we felt like a strong kind of cultural connection. But and what's interesting about it is we can focus on our regional culture, but there's also a very large national and international uh, aspect to this. CD is out on November 10th. Yes, and, and, and streaming. Streaming, Any kind yes. of streaming yes. is, yeah, November 10th. The music is yeah. out November yes. 10th, thank you, uh, and available wherever you find music. Exactly, yeah. Right now, if you want to pre-order things, I think you can go to the, uh, noxos.com, and, uh, but it'll be like you know, Spotify and Apple Music and all that because it it's a, a commercial international release, so we're very excited about it. All right, John Jetter, thank you so much. Thank you, appreciate it. John Jetter is the music director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony. The new recording, Lewis Wayne Ballard, The Four Moons, will be released Friday. John came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has issued a stay on declaring the elusive ivory bill woodpecker extinct. We hear from people on a mission to track down the bird tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. Circus has a long history. The word can be found in 14th century texts referring to performances that took place in ancient Rome. The idea of the Big Top Circus dates back at least 250 years, and circus arts continue today across the world featuring juggling, acrobatics, aerial arts, and other forms of entertainment. Saturday afternoon, one of the live shows produced by Brooklyn-based Hideaway Circus will be at the Jones Center in Springdale. Reflex features the juggling art of Jay Gilligan. Last week, we asked a few questions of Jay and of Joshua Avener, a co-founder of Hideaway Circus. I began by asking Josh how he developed an appreciation for circus arts. Oh, I saw Cirque du Soleil when I was a kid, and I walked out of that tent at 10 years old and knew immediately that uh, circus was going to be my life's obsession and passion. And I happened to see uh, a juggler who was from Connecticut, but um, internationally famous named Michael Motion. And I grew up most of my childhood in Connecticut. So I had all these opportunities to see this famous solo juggler who won a Tony for his juggling. So the idea that you could even do juggling shows as a format um, just existed to me as a kid. So later in life, when I started producing with my wife, Lindsay, who's the director of the show, um, when Jay contacted us and we started talking about, you know, could we do a one man juggling show, uh, you know, that had wide appeal and would tour and could do all these things. I sort of had seen this form before and thought there's a way to do this in a you know contemporary relevant way. Jay, thanks for joining us from from your car. How did you uh, come to juggling as performance? Well, it, it started as a hobby. And the funny thing is, I always wanted it to remain a hobby because when I was a little kid, I just learned to juggle from a book from the library and it became an obsession. Um, you know, one great thing about juggling is that you're never done. You can always learn that next trick and you can always find new ways to juggle. And so it's not like you could ever, um, 
finish all of juggling, if that makes sense. It's like the internet, right? You'll never get to the last page of the internet. And so when I was a little kid, uh, you know, I started to be exposed to, from, from this book, I learned how to juggle. So of course, somehow a little bit here and there, I started to meet other jugglers. And after a while, after a couple of years, I would see, yeah, different performers who, who juggled or I would seek them out, you know, it became a thing in my world. And so at some point I remember seeing these older performers and they were all, I wouldn't say they're burned out. I don't want to say they were bad performers, but they had definitely given up on juggling as something they were interested in. Juggling had turned into, you know, a way they made their living, which is wonderful. Uh, that's great. But they had definitely stopped caring about juggling as an activity that they love to do. And I was so afraid of that because I love juggling so much. I couldn't imagine, you know, when I was 10 years old that I would ever hate juggling or not want to juggle 24 hours a day. And so that really stuck with me, um, maybe more than it should have uh, <laughs> for a lot of my early life where I was like, hey, juggling is a thing I love to do. It's my passion. It's my hobby. It's my interest. It's the way I express myself or, or find my place in the world somehow or, or, you know, sort out who I am and confront who I am as a person as I grow up. And I thought, man, I'd never want this to turn into some sort of job where I end up because it is a job. I end up hating you know, what I do in terms of, of that initial spark of, of it being a passion. I just fell into it by accident. I mean, it literally was, hey, perform. Why don't you go show grandma your new trick you just learned today? You know, get, get out of the house, kid. Like, go show your grandma what you learned. And then it was like, oh, there's a family reunion and you could do a little juggling there. And then, you know, the local fire station's having a Halloween party. And then there's the Cub Scout Blue and Gold Banquets, the town next town over. <laughs> it was very organic like that. So it was never, you know, predetermined or, or premeditated. Whereas a lot of, uh, you know, the history of circus, if we trace this back, it's a lineage of master and apprentice at the least, if not like many generations of the same family, you know, passing down this this tradition of performing. So I didn't come from anything like that. I think most of us have a relationship uh, of juggling like your grandmother, right? We we may know someone who can show us a trick and impress us. And I haven't seen you perform, but I've read reviews. And what it sounds like you do is juggling, but juggling is communication to bring the audience in. It's not just objects in the air. Well, I mean, you, you just used that word right there. You said, you know, you have we might know friends who would do a trick to impress us. Uh, and of course that is our normal cultural, uh, relationship to that in the Western hemisphere. I mean, we grow up in our society and we, we have a relationship to all these art forms, right? We, we look around the world we live in. I mean, one, one good way to, to measure this metric is the architecture. So there's, there's football stadiums, you know, there's the opera house. You can just visually look around your landscape in your world and see how we value different cultures, cultural art forms. I mean, Right. So there, you don't look around the landscape and see the juggling house or the, the juggling stadium. That's not a thing we have. But we do have these, you know, conscious or unconscious relationships to all these different art forms in our world. And so when we talk about specifically about the relationship then of our culture to circus arts or specifically juggling, it is that thing about I'm going to impress you. You're going to watch me do this trick because you can't do that trick because I'm you know, I have I have the skill that you don't possess. And therefore, that's your reason you should watch me do this. Right. Because if you could do the trick same as me, why would you watch me do it? Right. We can just simply say then that instead of trying to impress you, I'm trying to express. So instead of impress, express. And so 
What can that be? I can't really tell you in words because it's an abstract art form. And as well, juggling is an art form in and of itself. So if I could express to you in words what those things mean, I wouldn't have to juggle. I could be a poet or I could be a storyteller. Uh, I could be a professional podcaster. I don't know. I, I've spent my entire career thinking, what could juggling be if we don't try to impress you as the first level, right? The first impression. Shouldn't it be that you go, oh, you're very skilled. But maybe the first impression is you go, wow, I never saw something like that before in terms of the image. Like it, strike, it strikes you in a certain way of like a surprise even. Wow, that's crazy looking. I never seen something look like that. Or I didn't know objects could behave like that. Or I didn't know our world worked. I didn't know physics allowed that to happen. And Josh, as, as Jay pointed out, it's far easier to see a football or a basketball or baseball game in the United States than it is to see circus. But what I think is interesting is because circus, especially in some parts of the country, is, is a rarity, when you do see it in person, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's this, these activities, these skills, these athletic endeavors that just kind of blow us away. And I'm sure that you've seen that with inexperienced circus crowds. Well, the reason I love circus is because it appeals to everyone. It's not like opera or dance that Jay was talking about that has an elitist attitude where you have to go to a fancy space and wear a fancy outfit to see it. Circus has always been in America for the people, and it's always been, in a way, about proving the amazing things that humans can can do. And I think that's not only inspiring, but it speaks to so many levels. And you know, as somebody who produces this work, one of the reasons why it's great, even though Jay, what Jay is talking about before is like he's trying to express something more than the technique. Even if you didn't like the expression, the technique is amazing. Like you don't see anybody do these things. You know, it's crazy to see somebody juggle, I don't want to give it away, X amount of balls or rings and do these things with these effects. Those things alone are amazing. And then I think, you know, one thing trying to bring circus into today's era is bringing people into like what is juggling like why should i care like everything that jay is sort of talking about juggling does does need to be explained um, if you're going to do an hour of it which is basically how long the show is it's about you know 70 percent juggling but then there's 20 or 30 minutes that explains you know the history of it history of jay like how these machines and inventions were created and, uh, you know, why it how it affects us and physics and why you should care. And I think the combination of of elements, uh, I don't know, works for a very wide audience and particularly an American audience who have a love for circus. Is gravity an enemy or an ally of a juggler? I love this question because it, it, it gets me to remember one of my best friends and one of the greatest jugglers who lived in, in my lifetime. His name was Luke Wilson. Unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, about a decade ago from cancer, but Luke was Luke and I grew up together. And he was one of the greatest jugglers ever. And everybody except Luke would give this answer to your question. They would say, "We're fighting against gravity. We're you know jugglers fight gravity." <laughs> and and it's a it's a slogan on a lot of jugglers you know websites or promotional material. Like yeah, we're fighting jugglers against gravity. I think there's even a group you know of jugglers in Canada called Jugglers Against Gravity. And I remember Luke, I just laughing that you asked this because Luke would always say, no, <laughs> without gravity, we couldn't juggle. <laughs> gravity is, is the whole reason we can juggle. It's the whole reason that when you throw something, it comes back. 
Jay Gilligan will perform his juggling show, Reflex, Saturday afternoon at 2 at the Jones Center in Springdale. It is a presentation of Hideaway Circus based in Brooklyn. Tickets are $10. Our conversation with Jay and with Josh Avener, a co-founder of Hideaway Circus, recorded on Zoom last week. This is Ozarks at Large. The nonprofit Music Moves operates with the ideas that music can be a gateway to education and history, and, of course, that music can be entertaining. They're combining those ideas Thursday for their Good News and Blues fundraiser, taking place at First National Bank on Steel Boulevard in Fayetteville. Yesterday, Reggie James, Executive Director of Music Moves, Anthony Ball, Vice President and Program Director, and Music Moves Board Member Tanya Mims came to the Carver Center for Public Radio. Anthony Ball says tomorrow night's fundraiser has fun to further the group's education mission. That's at the heart of what we do. We've always done events and performances and stuff like that. We didn't want to double up and do more of that. We want, really want to do more education opportunities. We're talking about stuff, man, that's so, it's so important in our society uh, to acknowledge all the contributions of all people. So for us to be able to carry out that, all that curriculum that we have into the schools, we're in Fayetteville School District once a week now. Uh, we're, we're still going around with Crystal Bridges with their mobile art lab. Uh, going through to a lot of boys and girls clubs in our region throughout the region uh, we were just at Jones Center so man we're, we're we're really being fortunate to be able to go into all all these different spaces and one we're, we're, we're able to teach um, about the black diaspora and the contributions and and but some of these things that we're teaching they can apply it to today uh, call and response um, coded messaging all these things we've ha- we have kids we're taking drums into schools and they're applying it and, and making it their own so we're, we're really excited about all the education stuff that we're doing D- any idea how many schools you've been to yet um, officially oh. and unofficially I, I don't know it's yeah. about it's a, it's know. probably a, it's upward of about 12 yeah because we've we've been to River Valley we've all over Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. We've been in Madison County. We've been in Washington, uh, Benton County. Uh, we've been to Tahlequah yeah. uh, the last two years. Yeah. Now, that was uh, so we and we're and we're working. We we have donors, um, uh, the Stunning Foundation. There we're, we're partnering with them. They want to get us in back in in Eastern Arkansas in the okay. Delta. So we're yeah. we're really excited about that too. This is curriculum that's pretty unique, uh, and it shouldn't be. So um, man, it's it's right. fitting like a glove right now. I'm I'm excited. No, I was just okay. I was just echoing. I was just saying that that is correct. It shouldn't be unique to just for Northwest Arkansas, and that's one of the reasons why the Starlin Family Foundation they they thought enough of it. They really want us to be in Eastern Arkansas if at all possible. So we're we're excited about that, and we are ready to to move on that. So. Well, let's talk about good news and blues, because this helps. This yes. will help yes, things yes. happen. What will happen? Well, we've got an incredible evening planned. Yeah. Uh, they're going to be live entertainment. We've got the food therapy coming to do a great meal, refreshing beverages, 
and there's going to be mu- music moves, swag bags. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think it's going to be a great time. Don, how did you get involved with music moves? I've known Reggie and Anthony for quite a while, and we've been friends for a while. The education piece was something that really interested me. I love how excited the kids get about it and how much they enjoy it. I also love uh, their idea of creating the space where not only kids can go and have more opportunities to perform, but also bringing uh, these different genres of music and the attention on um, the history, black history and how that's influenced all these different genres in this location and then also the the scholarships that they provide for um, kids for instruments and or if they can't afford to go to like the, the camps yes. that they're invited to because yeah. they're doing well but they can't afford to get there yeah. those that that part really touched me and interested me to want to be a part we will definitely have an enjoyable time, as, as Tanya's already said. So, you know, when you have food therapy, or anytime, I'm going to say this, anytime you have the blues, you got to have good food, right? Right. It, it doesn't, <laughs> it just doesn't mix to have great blues and to have subpar food. And so food therapy is going to provide a wonderful meal for the evening. But they'll get a chance to hear a lot about music moves and even see on screen because we'll, we'll have a lot of media uh, to push out too, and then there's another performance by someone named Deanne Smith, and she's out of the River Valley area, but she's been in, uh, she was born and raised in Fort Smith area, and she's a ph- phenomenal artist, but she does a great job of weaving history. So she'll she's gonna basically just kind of take everybody on a journey over the last like 80 years in music in, in America. So it's gonna be good. Anthony, when you're in some of the schools. Just an example of, you mentioned bringing out the drums, you mentioned learning about call and response. What are yeah. some of the things that you might work with students in yeah. a setting? Yeah, I, I love these questions. I get, I get excited because, you know, last year we were, um, we were with a program called SOAR, and I went in. Uh, you know, we, we've had our curriculum for three years now, so I was still seeing it in the making. So uh, one when I knew that it was working, uh, we were teaching coded messaging. And coded messaging is pretty similar. Everybody knows songs like uh, Wade in the Water, uh, Sweet Home, Sweet Chariot. Wade in the Water is about escaping, uh, if you listen to the words. Uh, and this is how uh, slaves communicated to other slaves that, hey, there's a, a, a freedom um, uh, freedom riders that's coming tonight to take us take us away. Uh, we use this concept to teach drums uh, in in the class. So we gave everybody hand drums, uh, and they made their own beat. It was a nonverbal situation, but they could create a beat on how to send people to the parts of the rooms that they wanted to. So they hit the drum one time, they'll sit to the right corner. If they hit the drum two times, they'll sit to the left corner. And they, they just created all these creative beats um, to communicate with each other. Uh, and that was when I was like, all right, this curriculum is really, really working. We created it in COVID. So we were really, really had to be innovative on how can we um, do this in such a way where teachers can do this in the classrooms, on Zoom, uh, you know, of course we know attention spans of kids are short, so the music yep. element uh, really, really helped teach these kids uh, all these different concepts uh, that are, man, that are really, really old traditions and, 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 how, and old methods. Yeah, Dr. Murdoch was very intentional about, about making it uh, the, the synthetic part is where they begin to process, now how do I apply this, right? But it, the engagement part was so high that that's what teachers was like, 
okay, this was pretty easy to implement because it, it required a lot of engagement with the students. And like we say, during COVID, it's a zero. If there was no engagement, teachers yeah. didn't want to do it. And right. I don't blame them because they were dealing with young people that yeah. were trying to stay on task. And so for the teachers that, that jumped in with us to implement this during COVID, man, still forever a shout out to them for helping us even even kind of even do some research on it to, you know, tool up on some things and get some things even better. So thanks again, Dr. Jeffrey Allen Murdoch, and to all the teachers that were involved in helping us to get that thing off the ground initially. Proceeds raised at Good News in the Blues will help further the education. Yes, all proceeds that are raised at Good News in the Blues go towards education. None of it goes toward admin costs, no food costs, no, nothing for production. Everything goes strictly back into the classrooms. Thank you all for coming in. Thank you so much for having us as always, Kyle. We appreciate it. Anthony Ball, Vice President and Program Director for Music Moves. Reggie James is Executive Director. Tanya Mims, a board member of the nonprofit. The Good News in the Blues fundraiser, 6 to 8, tomorrow night at First National Bank on Steel Boulevard in Fayetteville. You can find out more at musicmovesar.com. In other nonprofit news, the momentary will be led by Jill Wegar, a founding member of the executive team at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. She joined Crystal Bridges before it opened. She'll still serve as senior director there. A press release lists her goals as director of the momentary, as driving attendance, and enhancing community engagement across the institution. And the University of Arkansas Fort Smith is officially naming the Family Enterprise Center on campus the Jim Walcott Family Enterprise Center. He was a familiar guiding figure in the city, an integral part in the creation of the Arkansas Colleges of Health Education. He died in May. The official naming ceremony took place yesterday on the UAFS campus. Do you like daily word puzzles that feature color-based hints? If you do, you're in luck. Introducing the KUAF Newsword, a daily word puzzle that tests your Ozarks at Large listening skills. Just go to KUAF's website or newsword.org slash KUAF to start puzzling. Happy thinking. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. This weekend, Matthew, Yeah, I went to the movie theater and saw What Happens Later. What Happens Later? Well, you don't know What Happens Later, oh, but okay. you know, it's the David Duchovny, Meg Ryan oh, movie that yes, was filmed. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, mostly at XNA, right. also Crystal Bridges. Yeah. Um, and if you didn't know better, you would think that XNA has 15 moving walkways, and they're all a mile long. It's a testament to uh, the editing and creativity. I enjoyed, the f- I enjoyed it a lot. Well, I, uh, I, I, I had forgotten the title of the movie. Mm-hmm. I am, uh, I'm glad that it, it played well in at least Kyle Callum's land. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a full theater by any... I mean, it's, yeah. it's a calm movie. There are only two actors, David Duchovny and Meg Ryan, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Tomorrow, uh, you'll be joined by Timothy Dennis uh, on the show. That's right. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing lots of music stuff. You will. All right. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Arkansas Community Foundation has a vision for communities in Arkansas to become the places your kids will want to raise their kids. By strategically funding local nonprofits, ARCF provides not only resources, insight, and inspiration, but also a statewide impact to build better communities. More at arcf.org.